Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Chelsea tonight. And our topic is Be a Manifestation of the Truth. I came across this passage uh, while I was away about being a manifestation of the truth. And this really um, grabbed my attention. So I wanted to explore this. Um, what is... We know something about the negative potential of human beings, do we not? We, we sort of have some idea of how, how bad human beings can get, and we've explored some of those fun places ourselves <laughs> in our lives. Um, how good can a human being get? Like, what's the upper, upper limit? If we're being told by Scripture to be a manifestation of the truth, what is that? What, what would that look like? How does that work? So that's what we're looking at tonight. Will you join me in an opening prayer, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. You are the one God of heaven and earth, the Word made flesh. As we search these pages, Lord, please open our eyes our minds and our hearts, to seeing you, to glimpsing your love, your providence, your plan for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends. Such a joy to be with you again. Sending out love to those of you who are online and getting the audio and on the phone and here in the room. The blessing to be with you. Have a very nice break, a good restful time. Uh, why don't we start by reading the sort of text tonight that is in 2 Corinthians. So if you know how to get there, you go through the four Gospels, head to the right. You go through Acts and Romans. You get to 1 and 2 Corinthians. And I want 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to read a few different verses in here. This is Paul, Epistle of Paul, and he's writing to the Corinthians. And uh, so let's look at those first couple of verses in chapter 4 then. Okay. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, there it is. commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Okay, so we're jumping in the deep end there. Let's have a look <laughs> yeah. at that a little bit. And the Old King James differs a little bit from the New King James in the early wording of it. What did you have again at the beginning of verse 2? Renouncing what? The hidden, hidden things, things of shame. Of shame. Interesting, in the Old King James, it's uh, the hidden things of dishonesty, hmm. which works well with the handling of the Word of God deceitfully. So whenever I read words about renouncing or laying aside or putting aside and so on, I think about repentance. I think about changing behaviors and that kind of thing. It's been striking me lately uh, how much the uh, ministry of Paul was based on his um, changing his behavior. Like what made Paul uh, effective, accepted by the apostles, accepted by people uh, as, a, as an evangelist for Christianity, was that his behavior had changed so radically from when he persecuted the Christians to being a friend of Christians. It was crucial. So it's interesting that, that Paul is considered sort of the poster child of, of faith alone. And you can see passages that people base that on. And yet if Paul's behavior hadn't changed, nobody would have listened to him. You, you wouldn't have listened to some guy who was persecuting Christians say, no, I know what Christianity ought to do. Well, you know, you, you, don't, you don't get anywhere by persecuting Christians and then saying, I have a better idea. Uh, when he turned around, and became a loving force and working so hard to spread the church. It was a very different um, situation. So he's talking about what we have done who are in this ministry. You know, he's talking about his ministry and those of others who are doing evangelization in the early church. And let's read that verse 2 again. So we renounced the hidden things of dishonesty or shame. I can see why it would say shame there because they're like the, the things that you did in secret. You know, the things you don't want somebody to know that you did, okay? 
not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Yeah, crafty. So this is moving away from... See, to me, when you're trying to figure out what a phrase means, like I see this striking phrase, manifestation of the truth, I want to look in that immediate context to see, is there anything in the verse that would tell us how... what? What do you mean manifestation of the truth? How does that work? Whoa, well, it looks like when you set aside these things of dishonesty or shame, when you're not walking in craftiness, like that's sort of the opposite of kind of an honest, straightforward approach, isn't it? Nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So interesting. So, so not so twisting the word and so on. But what's his method? By manifestation of the truth, go on, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Yeah, so you see, this is part of the ministry. And you're familiar with this concept. Some people talk about someone as being like a walking Bible or something. You know, it's the idea that people are kind of an advertisement for the teachings that they're preaching. You know, like, um, what did someone once say? Uh, uh, your actions are shouting so loud I can't hear your words. You know, when when the words and actions don't match, uh, the words are not going to mean much. But by manifestation of the truth, uh, and look down a little bit later, let's uh, look at verse... Why don't we just read right through? Let's read verse 3 there. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the, night of the, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Oh, and so people have actually prevented, they, they're blocking the light, like they don't want the light of the Lord to come in. Isn't that what you get there? Mm-hmm. And the language of the old King James at the beginning there, the God of this world, in your version it said the God of the age, right? Of this age, so this yeah, age has blinded. Has blinded the minds of those who do not believe to prevent this light. Often this is an appearance that scripture uses that it says God's blinded them, but really obviously it was their behavior that shut it down. So for their protection, they're not able to believe so that they won't commit profanation, which Swedenborg says very strong things about. If you sort of half believe and then you go back, it's like that when the story, when the house gets swept and then seven devils worse than the first come back and take over. And that's not good. Uh, Go on. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and our... This is the content of what's being preached. You know, we're not saying, we're so great. You know, we're, we're preaching about the Lord. He's so great. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that's a handful. Good old yeah. Paul knows how to pack a verse. Yes. Uh, the, <laughs> like carrying on luggage or something, isn't it? Uh, for God. Now, what, what, what was that a reverence to? Commanding the light to shine out of the dark? When did that happen in Scripture? Oh, that's right. That was a creation story at the very beginning yeah. of Genesis, wasn't it? Now, isn't it interesting that the creation story, which so many people have read as being something just about how the physical dirt got here, what did the physical water do, how did the physical animals get here, isn't it interesting that Paul uses this, God, the, the, you know, the same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, where has he shined or shone? In our hearts. In our hearts. Well, it didn't say anything about the heart back in the Genesis story. And yet Paul is using that story and bringing it forward to be about the human heart. That God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give. And then this is amazing. Like, I love all these ofs in here and ins yes. and ofs, right? <laughs> Your word processor would flag that. You're not supposed to use more than three <laughs> prepositional phrases in a row. And it says... To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what my translation reads yep, here. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, to give the light of the knowledge. So knowledge equals light. That's interesting. So it's using light in a non... Obviously, if light is shining in your heart, it's not physical light. It's not talking about physical light shining somehow into your physical 
heart, beating heart or something, it's talking about into some part of your spirit, uh, your emotions, you know, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful statement. So if you could see the face of the Lord, then you would know the glory of God because that's visible right there in his face. I think of the transfiguration when they went up on the mountain and his face was shining like the sun. And here's a phrase we read a few weeks ago in Bible study. But, verse 7. Yep. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yeah, so here's this amazing treasure, and yet we just put it in an old clay pot. Interesting. Why, why would we, you know, why wouldn't you put it in some magnificent, you know, silver bowl or something? But we put it in earthen vessels. That, why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So there's a recognition, there's the divine, there's something that's coming from the divine. What did he say in verse four, 5? We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching about God. We put this treasure in earthen vessels, meaning ourselves, you know, people who are, who are preaching, uh, so that the excellence of power is clearly belongs to God and not to us. And then he's got this wonderful little essay about how he felt, how people feel uh, when they do this intense kind of evangelization work. Listen to this. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Hmm. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Oh. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Okay. Struck down, but not destroyed. Yes, isn't that a nice bunch of things? So it's like it's not as though it took the pressure off. The pressure's there, but we're not crushed, you know. And, and we're not at the point of despair. We're not forsaken. We're cast down. We're not destroyed. And then mm. listen to what he says here, because he uses the word manifest again, twice. Oh. Let's look at this. Okay. Verse ten. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Mm that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Wow, the life of, wow. The life of Jesus could be manifested in this lousy old, only partially working flesh. Uh, one of my daughters, when I recently had my 60th birthday, gave me a t-shirt that said, uh, uh, vintage 1956, original parts. Mostly, it's, you know, uh, um, it's, it's really this this flesh could carry the life of Jesus, and he, Paul loves this dying and life. Thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he just can't resist it. He does it a bunch of times in his epistles. So, so we're we're carrying around in our body. What does he mean? Carrying around in our body. Yeah. You can only physically die once. What is he talking about? We carry around on an ongoing basis in our body. The dying of the Lord Jesus in our body. You would think, well, aren't you carrying it in your mind? Don't you like know that that's what happened to the Lord? And that's what you're communicating to people is that you know that the Lord died on the cross and was resurrected. What do you mean you're carrying it in your body? What is that about? And it's so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So where do we start here? We started with the manifestation of the truth. That's how Paul says, you know, that's how we commend ourselves to people's conscience in the sight of God, that we're a manifestation of the truth. Carrying in our body, wow, carrying in our, is that really possible? Carrying in our body the, the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be made manifest in our body. And he goes on in verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, mm. that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's basically almost like a parallel to what we just read, isn't it? And he says that we're always delivered to death. It's like Paul says elsewhere, I die daily, he says. And it reminds me of Luke 9.23 when the Lord says, uh, you know, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. So it's not just talking about being like physically martyred and physically dying mm -hmm. one time. It's something that's going on all the time. So I look back to where we started here, and I think mm -hmm. the dying that he must be talking about is giving up the dishonesty or the shame, you know, giving up the craftiness, giving up the deceit and all that. 
that must be the dying and carrying that around in our body, in our, in our, <clears throat> see, Jesus went through a process of the cross. At the time that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, uh, there was no cross. Nobody was thinking about a cross. There had been no cross. There wasn't anything about, nobody knew he was going to die by crucifixion. What's he talking about? He tells his disciples, you know, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Well, the Lord didn't have a, like, what cross did the Lord have? This was, you know, years before he was crucified. What's he talking about? He's talking about the process he was going through of purification of those evils that he'd inherited in his outer self, which is a major part of what he was doing. And he says, this is, this is what Paul is having to go through. So you see, I think this is giving us a hint of, as to what it means to be a manifestation of the truth. I've been thinking, you know, some of you heard me say this before. I try to repeat myself as much as the Bible does, but I don't think I'll ever manage to do it. But um, uh, the truth, I, I, for a long time I thought of the truth as meaning just sort of like what is, or a statement of reality. You know, the sun is still up. It's midsummer here in the northern hemisphere. Whatever, you know, that's the truth. But I've realized over time, particularly we'll look in a little bit maybe at John 3, where it talks about doing the truth. Well, how do you do the lightest, you know, how do you do the fact that it's June 29th here or something? I, I don't know what you do about that. The truth, I realized after a while, is what I call, I, sort of the equivalent in my head these days, is that it means your marching orders. The truth, the, those are the commandments. They're the things that you're supposed to do. So... It's not just talking about, is it? It's not just talking about, like, you could say, oh, well, be a manifestation of the truth. That means just be brutally honest with everybody all the time. Um, I don't think that's what he's talking about because what he just said earlier in that verse is that you renounce dishonesty. You know, uh, yes, that has something to do with being honest, but it's about the way that you're living your life. To be a manifestation of the truth is to be a living example of what happens when you follow these principles. Right? I mean, surely that, that's what he's talking about. Uh, that's what the manifestation of the truth is. Uh, let's look at a couple of other passages from Paul. Let's turn to the left and go to Romans chapter 6. There's just a couple of passages that I like on this subject that make it clear. Again, you know, people say, Paul just says, oh, just, just have faith and that, that'll save you. Uh, that's not what I read in here. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Oh, look at the verse just before. You know, it's talking hmm. again about death and life, right? You want me to start with 6, the verse 11. 11. Why don't start there? Yeah. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Ah, dead to sin. Okay, there, there we go. Okay, dead to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what should we do? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Yeah, now how clear is that, right? It doesn't say, don't let a scrap of it ever enter your consciousness or something like that. I mean, that's not realistic. But what does it say? It says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't, don't let that be the driving force of your life. You know, the thing that determines the decisions that you make and so on that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So when that lust is talking to you, saying, oh, do this, oh, do that, oh, do this, oh, I feel like doing that. You know, if you're just following those lusts of the flesh, uh, those evil desires and so on, uh, <laughs> and I'm not just talking about physical pleasures, I'm really talking about, you know, harming other people, uh, doing damage, being self-centered, running roughshod over other people, violence, cruelty, all that kind of stuff. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. That's powerful. I think that's what he's talking about. Like, how do you become a manifestation of the truth? You do, the truth is, don't, you know, there's a marching order. Don't let it reign. When you follow that, you become, see, a manifestation is not like you're saying it. You, you are it, right? A manifestation would be, you're an embodiment of the truth. 
Well, that's a pretty amazing thing to say that the human being is capable of being a manifestation of the truth. Even more astounding in, the way, in a way is to say that you can be an embodiment of the life of Jesus, you know, that you can have his life in your body. But that's what we just read. You know, that, that's what they said. That's amazing. Now, do you get there quickly? Is that an easy thing? And let's turn to the right and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, this is Paul. And I just, I love this statement. It speaks to me somehow. The very end of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. What does hmm. Paul say? But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Yes, and so he's partly using, as he does a number of other places, a kind of an athletic analogy that particularly comes across in the New King James there. Hmm. Uh, but he's also talking about repentance, that he, that he keeps his body on a short leash. He doesn't just do anything that his outer self wants to do. And why? So that when I have preached to others, you know, I mean, that's powerful to me. When you preach to others, like, don't you be, uh, you know, that's a strong motivator, I think. When you preach to others, don't yourself, and the old King James says, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He, Paul does not want to be a reject. He doesn't want to work out badly. Uh, so he, the language of the old King James, I keep under my body, like I keep it under discipline, as it says in the New King James, bring it into subjection. Uh, so it's using your higher self, that inner self, that more rational part, to say, uh, no, I've had 14 of those in a row, I should probably not have number 15 right now. You know, as some way of trying to sort of discipline the lower self and, and slow it down a little bit, because uh, he, Paul wants to be an effective force for spreading Christianity, and that's not going to happen if his body is running away with him kind of thing, if those lusts of the flesh are taken over. All right. Uh, let's look at some other passages that come to mind. Let's go back to Matthew. Shall we turn to the left, go to that first gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Very famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount that's been turned into a catchy song. And uh, 5 verse 14, let's start there. You are the light of the world. What an amazing thing. This is Jesus preaching to this huddled mass of miserable people. <laughs> you are the light of the world. And they're sort of looking behind him like, is, is there somebody else here? Or what, who is he talking about? Go on. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Mm. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Very familiar phrase, and mm. isn't that amazing? So it doesn't say let the light of God, or whatever. it says your light, right? I mean, it says your light, let your light shine but so what are people going to see in that light they're going to see your good works you see mm -hmm. and i think the way that works is the good works have to come first before the light turns on that's what paul was saying before i renounce that other you know get rid of the craftiness get rid of that deceitfulness and all that stuff and when he's living well then that light uh kicks in kind of thing and uh, so let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works. So there's good works already there. The light turns on and they can see it. And they don't give the glory to you. You don't get a fat head. They say, oh, God is good because they can see that this is not something you could have done on your own. So this is something that the Lord is offering us. Another thing about human potential. Uh, let's go to... Uh, John chapter 3. So turn to the right, you'll go through Mark and Luke. We get to John chapter 3, a very <clears throat> beloved part of the word to me. This is the famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who came to him by night. And it's all about being born again. That, that's the where Jesus leads the conversation. Look at verse 3 in chapter 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the smoking gun passage where the idea of born again comes from. You know, this is, mm. and Swedenborg calls it regeneration, which is a term used elsewhere in scripture, Titus 3, verse 5. Uh, the, born again, regenerated, born again. And uh, then uh, Nicodemus is confused because he thinks he's talking about physical birth. And in verse 5, what does Jesus say? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's the same thing. You can't see the kingdom of God in verse 3. You can't enter it in verse 5. And people have much debated, does this mean water baptism? What is he talking about? Swedenborg says that to be born of water and the Spirit, water is the truth, and the Spirit is what you get when you live by that truth. So you need the truth, you need to live by it. That's when you enter that kingdom. And then he says, you know, in verse 7, don't... Oh, let's read verse 6 and 7, that's great stuff. Okay. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Oh, it's just, it's so, you know, what a simple statement and yet so profound. Our earthly lives, you know, what can they generate except earthliness? You know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The way that you come into a spiritual life is through the Lord. It's not something you can do to yourself, but it's something that the Lord offers us. In verse 7 there. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Yeah, and let's skip down a little bit. There's this wonderful thing. i just like to put this in context. Let's start at verse 16 because people have just hammered this mm. and believed that this was teaching that faith alone saves because it says if you believe in the Lord, you have everlasting life. So that must be the basis of your salvation. Let's look at that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And let's keep reading what the Lord says because he's not done talking yet, right. right? He keeps talking down to verse 21. Let's see what he says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, mm. but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, so this is about salvation. Good, keep going. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Okay, so those three verses very much give you the idea that faith is the basis of salvation. Right. Does it say that faith alone is the basis of salvation? Let's read on. Because and, it's now it says what the condemnation is. Right. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Oh, it doesn't say anything about their faith, does it? Light came into, this is the Lord. This is who you're supposed to believe. The Lord is the light. Light came into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were so in four verses it's linked at boom 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 from faith right to how you live your life are your deeds evil or not if your deeds are evil you don't want the light i mean look in yourself you know when, when you're when you're doing something bad you, you don't want that broadcast or something you know that's not a good thing uh let's go on so their deeds are evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So there's no way that you can fulfill verse 16 about faith without living a good life. You, you, can't, you can't do it because you wouldn't come to the light to believe in the Lord, to believe in the light. You'd have to be living a good life because otherwise you won't avoid the light and head in the opposite direction, right? Because it'll expose you. And look at this phrase in 321. Hmm. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And you see, once again, the deeds come first, don't they? It's like, let your light so shine. You know, the people may see your good works. The good works are already there. Now turn on the light. It goes good works, then light, not the other way around. Same here, right? That you're doing good deeds, and then you come to the truth, because you don't mind the light, because your works were not done in yourself. It's not your own self-centered thing. It's not your lower self running the show. You've laid that aside. You've done some repentance and so on. And that what you're doing now is done in God. What an amazing statement. Done in God. Uh, so that fits well with what we're talking about tonight. 
and look at John chapter 17. Let's turn to the right. Jesus was, of course, a manifestation of the truth. It says in the beginning of uh, John that the, he was the word, he was the word made flesh and so on, full of grace and truth. And uh, look at what it says in verse 6 here, 17 verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And this is Jesus talking to the Father. I have manifested your name. So he's, he's manifesting something, right? Mm -hmm. He's manifesting the name of God. And uh, name, if you follow Swedenborg's idea of correspondence, is the name means the quality of something. We see that in this world where we say, uh, you know, someone's, you know, soiled their good name or, or you, you know, I've got a few names on the list who I think could do this. And that means people of quality and that sort of thing. Uh, so Jesus manifested the name of God and the name of God means truth and love. That's so Jesus was a manifestation of truth and love. Uh, so that same word manifest is used there. That seemed like fun to me. <laughs> Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians. So go through Acts and Romans. We'll get back into 1 Corinthians again. Chapter 12. This is a favorite passage about all the different gifts of the Spirit. And let's start at verse 4 there. Oh. <laughs> There's a little sticky note on the page. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> right on top of what you need. Yeah. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Oh. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Mm. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And listen to this. But the, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Okay, so these gifts are called a manifestation of the Spirit. There's that word again. We saw about a manifestation of the truth, and the words truth and spirit are very friendly with each other in Scripture. They, they obviously have the same kind of uh, meaning. The manifestation of the spirit is given to everyone. Let's read this wonderful little list of how mm -hmm. this comes out. But the manifestation of the spirit, or sorry, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. I just love it. So the important thing that that adds, first of all, it uses the, our, our key word for tonight, manifestation and all these different things are manifestation of the spirit so when it says to be a manifestation of the truth what kind of things are people doing here they're benefiting each other right with wisdom with knowledge with healing and prophecy and so on. you know these are things that people are doing for others this is a manifestation of the truth in other words that people become an embodiment of the truth they share that truth with other people and it's the same spirit, but every individual is different. So when the spirit shines off of your mind, it turns into this. It shines off another mind, it turns into that. And that's part of the fun of life, that no two people are exactly the same. And so it's not that we're all supposed to become a cookie cutter, you know, sort of twin robots or something through this process. We, they, these are all different gifts that the Lord gives us, but they all come from this oneness of the Lord. So I like that. Uh, let's turn to the right and go through Galatians to Ephesians. These are more epistles of Paul, and he's writing here to the people of Ephesus. And let's look at chapter 5 there. And uh, Paul is riffing about dark and light again. Let's look at verse 8, shall we? For you were once darkness. What? For you were once darkness. You were darkness? I mean, I can see that somebody could be in the dark or something. But this is saying, you were 
darkness. Wow. I don't think that means literally like that's spiritual, right? It's talking about that you were, oh, that's kind of nasty, isn't it? Like, oh, ever since you came into the room, I can't see a thing. You know, <laughs> you were darkness? Wow, okay. But now, what happened? But now you are light in the Lord. Wow, so talking about the human potential, people can become light. It's and very important detail that this adds, even if you were darkness at one point, you can become the light. You can become the light of the Lord. It's not all over for you. Oh, well, no, I'm just darkness. Other people are light. They can do that thing. It's not for me. No, the Lord knows how to turn you into light. So, you know, you were darkness, but now you're light. And then what do we have to do if, if that's the case? Walk as children of light. Yeah, listen to that. So there's a certain behavior that goes with that thing. The way that you behave. Walk as children of the light. Go on. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Yes, I assume that this is partly in yourself, as well as in other people, the unfruitful works of darkness. What an amazing phrase. Like, they don't, they don't produce anything good. They're just darkness. They just bring darkness into other people's lives, into your own mind, and so on. But rebuke that, whether you find it in yourself or someone else. Go on. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Yes, this has been a subject of much debate about what exactly is he talking about? What are they doing in the dark? Well, it's in the dark. We don't exactly know. But there's a various list of heinous things that people have done to each other, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're candidates for this. It's a shame to even speak about the things that people get, get into, you know? Uh, those are works of darkness. Okay, go on. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Manifest by the light. You see why we'd be reading this passage? Mm -hmm. And then listen to this little thing. For whatever makes manifest is light. Oh, well, there's a nice definition of light. You want to know what spiritual light is? It's whatever makes something manifest. It's whatever reveals, you know, what's going on. That's whatever has that effect is light. It's spiritual light. And let's read verse 14. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Yes, look at that. Christ will give you light. And it doesn't just mean give you light. Uh, it's even on the menu that it's possible for people to become a manifestation of light, to actually be light. Amazing that Paul would say, you were darkness, <coughs> now you are light. What is he talking about? That's, that's really amazing. Um, Okay, let's turn to the right, and you'll go through Philippians and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And I want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hmm. Yeah, let's look at verse uh, 15 and 16 there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But if I am delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Yeah, he's talking about behavior. In the Old King James, it uses the word behave. Mm. Behave yourself, you know, how you conduct yourself. This is about your behavior. Go on. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Oh, when did that happen? God was manifested in... Oh. I think his name started with a J, didn't it? Yes. Wasn't that, that Jesus Christ, God was manifest, what an amazing phrase. God oh, was manifest right. in the flesh. Go on. Yes. Justified in the spirit, mm. seen by angels, yes. preached among the Gentiles, right. believed on in the world, received up in glory. Isn't that great? Paul knows how to, how to do it. All right. <laughs> great is the mystery of God. God was manifest in the flesh. So again, some of the passages we've read tonight have been about how Jesus was a manifestation of truth and love. 
But he doesn't leave it there. Part of his love is that he said, oh, I want you to be part of the party too. You can be a manifestation of the truth. You can be a form of light. Um, all right. Let's turn to the right and uh, let's go to Hebrews. That comes up pretty quickly there. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, there's a bunch of different things in here that are pretty interesting. Maybe we'll start at verse 6 here. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. It's talking about the way the Old Testament rituals were done back in the day. This is an epistle to the Hebrews. Go on. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Yeah, listen to that. Okay, so there were two areas. There was an area where the priests were allowed. Then there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could mm. go in there, and only once a year, and there had to be a lot of careful ritual and stuff to protect himself when he went in there. Go on. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that listen the way... This, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Oh, it wasn't? Oh. Well, the Wait first... Wait a minute. So, so what you're yeah. saying is, so the Holy Spirit signified by this language of the Old Testament that the pathway into the Holy of Holies was mm -hmm. not yet what? Made manifest. It was not yet made... How you get in there wasn't revealed yet was not yet made manifest. Go on. While the first tabernacle was still standing. Mm. It was symbolic for oh. the present time. Oh, oh, the tabernacle was symbolic? Oh, I thought everything was literal in the Old Testament. It was symbolic? Oh, okay. Um, for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Ah, so the person who was doing the ritual... It wouldn't purify their conscience. It was symbolic. Hmm. But it wouldn't purify their heart and mind. It was just a symbol of what that would require. But the Holy Spirit had not yet revealed that pathway into the Holy of Holies. Hmm. You remember when Jesus uh, was crucified, and as he died, the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom. And now you hmm. could see, anybody could see right the way in. It was no longer behind the veil. That, that way into the Holy of Holies was made manifest. Okay. Uh, oh, might as well keep going, shall we? It's fun. Yep. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Oh, interesting. Okay, so this was about the various different 613 laws of the Old Testament. Go on. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people read this, of course, as just simply physical blood mm -hmm. uh, by his own blood. Actually, in the crucifixion, there's mm -hmm. only one place where the <clears throat> night before the crucifixion, it mentions that his sweat fell like great drops of blood. But actually in the description of the crucifixion, it just, there must have been, but it doesn't mention any actual blood. Uh, the way Swedenborg reads this is that blood has to do with divine truth, has to do with those marching orders, has to do with the word. So by that blood, uh, by that divine truth, that's how Jesus was able to enter into that holy place and provide this redemption for the human race, a pathway to get to the Holy of Holies. Go on. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see what it's talking about? That's why I think that the image of blood has to do with the truth is because it's said that the physical ritual doesn't change your conscience. But when you live by these teachings, yes, that has an effect on your heart and your mind. When you live, when you yourself choose to live by these teachings, not going through the motions or something, but actually internalizing this, then your conscience gets cleansed 
from dead works. You stop doing those works of darkness and you serve the living God. Let's just read the 15th verse there. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant mm. by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And you see, those who are called, you don't get eternal life if you're called. You get the promise of it because there's something you have to do. You have to take up your cross daily and follow him. It's not a, not a done deal type of thing. That's a complex passage, mm. but you see why it would come to mind. It was That's amazing to me that it's talking about manifesting a way into the Holy of Holies which gets not just to becoming a form of truth, but even becoming a form of love, uh, which Jesus did. Um, because those laws, let's turn back real quickly to Romans, if you can get back there. It's, as you're going left is before you hit the Acts and the, and the uh, four Gospels. Romans chapter 13, just a very important point that Paul makes here. Again, this is the guy who's held up as the poster child of doing away with the Ten Commandments. I don't see it in here. Look at verse 8 in chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Oh. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Period. Wow. Like that whole, is that done away with? Is he saying, oh, the Ten Commandments are done away with? No. He's saying if you love someone, you have done what those commandments are all about. Let's read verse 9, because that makes it even clearer. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to that. Those are the Ten Commandments. That's like the whole second table of the Ten Commandments. And that the Ten Commandments are what was in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in that Holy of Holies that was the, the Lord was making a, a way to. You know, like the, the pathway into the commandments was into love. And look at verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Listen to that. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I forget whether there's been some stuff in the news about people harming people. Does, did somebody do that the other day? Was there somebody who did some harm to somebody once? I thought I saw that on the news once. Yeah, wow, we seem to be like addicted to this thing now. Uh, okay, and let's read on. This is so beautiful. Okay. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Mm. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. First believed. You see, there's a progress to belief. That's what people miss in John 3.16. you, you got to do these things. There's a whole progression to it. This is a gradual process, and our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Go on. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Mm. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. See, isn't that talking about that repentance? Cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. And that's obviously something that we have the ability to do because Paul is exhorting us to do it. Mm. We can cast off the works of darkness. We can put on the armor of light. Go on. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Isn't that what we've been talking about all night? And what an amazing way to put it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like you're just <laughs> wearing it or in installing the Lord in yourself and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. <laughs> Don't fulfill those lusts. What did he say? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey the, its lusts. You know, lay that stuff aside. The Lord understands and all that stuff, but he's just saying, hey, if you want to get out of there, here's a way out. Uh, let's go to the right, almost to the book of Revelation. I want to get to the epistles of John there, if you see those in the back of your book. I want to go to 1 John chapter 4. Hmm. Actually, 1 John chapter 3. Let's start there uh, and pick up at the fourth verse in there. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Uh -huh. 
and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to Who take... Who was that? That was Jesus, right? right? Jesus was manifested. Why? To take away our sins. Uh-huh. And in him there is no sin. There's no sin in him. He has no sin in him, and he was manifested to take away our sins. Hmm. See, truth has to do with the taking away hmm. of sins. He was a manifestation of the truth. Go on. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Uh-huh. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Yeah, it's just, uh, see, it's the same thing that John 3 was saying. If you're doing bad things, you don't come to the light. Hmm. If you stop that, then you come to the light. Go on. Hmm. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Hmm. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Was what? Manifested. Oh, he was manifested. Okay, good. This is why he was manifested? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Mm, that's right. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Well, I haven't heard quite enough of our theme word tonight. Let's look at the next verse. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Oh, I see. So this is what's going to reveal who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Go on. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Ah, you see, love, love is a manifestation of the truth. Being a loving person is part of what it means to be a manifestation of the truth. Go on. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Yes, that's right. It doesn't just say faith. Love one another. Go on. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Oh, that was not good, I guess. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. That is amazing. Look at that explanation of why Cain killed Abel. Why did he kill him? Because Cain's works were evil, and his brothers were good. That's why he killed him. It's really, really amazing. And you see down there in verse 14, we've passed from death to life because we love now. You know, it's all in the same hmm. theme of what the Lord wants to give to us in this transformation. Look at chapter 4. Let's just look at verse 4 there. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Hmm. They are of the world, therefore speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Mm. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Go on. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Plain and simple. There it is. First John 4, 8, God is love. Go on. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Oh, was it? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us mm -hmm. and sent his son to be the propitiation. What is that? Pro sure. Okay. The For our sins. <laughs> it's from the Greek, hilasmo. Okay. Okay. Propitiation. Um, no, no, I, for I our sins. explain it a little better than that. The, the, <laughs> there's been a lot of debate about what the propitiation for our sins means. It means a pathway forward out of that. It's like the healing. Mm. It's, the, it's the remedy for our sins. And there's a great mistaken notion in Christianity that Jesus just did that and then we don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he, he did it himself. He became a perfect manifestation of truth and love and he showed us the way to take up our cross. The reason he says we have to take up our cross is because we have to go through a process ourselves, and that's what we have to go through in order to have our sin remedied. Otherwise, as Jesus says in Luke 13 and other places, you, you, you will die in your sins, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, okay. Oh, and let's just look at uh, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Yep, there you go. And then it says that no one has seen God at any time. Hmm. And so this is how 
he's manifested. This is how he comes forth. Okay, I want to say a little bit about this. One of the amazing things that Swedenborg says is that truth is the form of love. And love is the substance of truth. If you think you really have truth, he says a lot of people get confused between truth and knowledge. And knowledge, you can load knowledge in your head no matter how you live in your life. There's always you know, room to know things, to understand them and so on, uh, no matter how you live in your life. But you can't come to truth. Truth is light. You don't come to that unless your life is good. So as James says, the inside is works and the outside is faith. Um, we really need to be living by it to become that manifestation of the truth. And when we become a manifestation of the truth, we also, the truth is an embodiment of love. So what's being offered to us in these scriptures is that the human potential, the greatest fulfillment of the human potential, is that it is actually possible for us to become truth inwardly and to become love, or what Swedenborg refers to as charity, kindness. Not just to feel it, but to be it. You know, it said, you, we were darkness, now we are light. It's possible to actually be that. Now, let's think about that a little bit. Um, the, the, the horrible thing about becoming light is that you have to give up the works of darkness. It's awful. I mean, you know, if you become an embodiment of light, how can you sit around and moan and complain all day? It's not going to work, right? You're going to have to give up some stuff. How awful to become an embodiment of love. How terrible would that be? Because you would have to feel things instead of being numb. What would that be like? And, and uh, when hell sees love in anyone, they like to attack it with everything they've got. The Lord only allows a certain amount of attack to work. But you go through some torment in the process of becoming an embodiment of love. But Swedenborg says that this is actually possible. He says that the angels are ex-people, they're just people like you and me, who made certain choices in the course of their lives, and the Lord gradually, it doesn't happen all in a moment, but the Lord gradually turned them into light and love. So that's what they are on the inside, and then there's a human being on the outside. This is a weird, weird comment, but I've made many more already. Um, you've seen those weird movies, haven't you, friends, where the... Um, uh, where some alien comes down and bites you and then your inner, that you turn into that thing, you still look like yourself, but now you're an alien. And when you open your mouth, you go, Aah! or something, you know? Um, and you terrify your friends because they thought you were still one of the ones who wasn't bitten yet and, and all that good stuff. Um, that's the basis of, of a certain genre of horror movies. Um, uh, this is the opposite of that. I don't know if that's a good way to introduce it, but it's like, the you know, the horror of that is that who you are could be sort of gutted on the inside and then you could be replaced with something alien. So you still look like yourself, but you have this alien thing inside. Ooh, it's so creepy. Uh, what the Lord is offering is the very opposite of that. And I do think this is a terrible way to explain it. But he wants to gut us on the inside and replace us on the inside with love and truth. So that you, you remember that, that uh, story of the, the guy who was demon-possessed and uh, he cut himself with knives, uh, with stones, and, and was bleeding and was crying out all the time and terrified people. Nobody could hand, handle him. You put chains on him, he would just break them. He's monstrously strong and everything. And then when the Lord cured him, he was healed in his right mind, clothed in his right mind. It says, you know, uh, how shocking is that? It's the reverse of that creepy horror movie, isn't it? That all of a sudden you have this sanity. You have this wisdom, this calm, and this peace. It's wearing the same flesh suit that he was wearing a moment ago, but now there's something different inside there. Now, those miracles happen very quickly. In our lives, I think that's a very long, slow, gradual process of becoming truth and becoming love. Swedenborg talks about seeing angels in the other world who, um, 
you get these hardened business, you know, you get some hardened business guy. There's an interesting story here, and I don't know all the details, but I think what happened was that there was the two brothers, and uh, when they were young, the one brother, I think, killed the other one in order to get his inheritance, something like that. And then, anyway, I may have the details wrong, but when the brother, finally the brother, after his adult life, he dies, goes to the other world, very worried about seeing his, his younger brother, who he killed, and took his inheritance. And when he encounters the younger brother, the younger brother is such unbelievable love. Just such incredible love that this hardened guy who had done this horrible thing and lived with it all of his life, he just his heart just like melts and he just dissolves. He says it was love itself speaking. You know? It was love itself speaking. It's possible for us to be such an embodiment of love. And think about what that would be like if you had actually committed a crime against this person and the person is saying, I love you. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. You know, we're, we're fine. I love you. It, it worked out really well. And uh, I don't blame you. I forgive you. I understand the whole thing. You know, just love. Love in words. Love in language coming right at you. Uh, that's a manifestation of the truth. That's a manifestation, an embodiment of love. It's possible for us to be that way. Uh, the Lord is able to cleanse us to that level. Um, I want to close with a little scripture here. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, uh, which is the fifth book of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I want to go to chapter 33. There's this weird little Old Testament style statement where Moses is saying a prediction for the future about Zebulun and Issachar, two of the sons of Israel. And this struck me. Just read verses 18 and 19, and I'll see if I can explain what I see in here. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. There it is. Okay, go on. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. Yeah, okay. I, I, let me just see if I can talk about that a little bit. Zebulun means uh, the joining together. Uh, it, it has to do with love and truth coming together and being joined. Issachar has to do with the reward, the benefit of that. When those two things come together, then what do they do at the ver beginning of verse 19? They shall call the peoples to the mountain. Call the peoples to the mountain. I love that. Mountain means love. We are called to be an embodiment of love, to be a manifestation of truth. And there the people will offer sacrifices of righteousness, not doing those deeds of wickedness you used to do. We're called to the mountain. That's what's in the human potential. We can become that love. And then what are they going to do? For they shall partake of the abundance of the seas. That has to do with truth, especially in the word. And of treasures hidden in the sand. Now, have you ever eaten the word and it was a little sandy in your mouth? Uh, it, it can be a difficult test, text, but there are treasures hidden in the sand. When you get to that point, you understand what's in the word. You, you partake of the treasures that are hidden below the surface there in the sea, that sea of truth that's in Scripture, and these treasures that are hidden in the sand. Even the driest, dustiest old part of the Word have some treasure underneath there for you. But we're called to the mountain. We're called to be forms of love. So uh, Swedenborg actually says that we're born to be forms of love and truth. That's what we're born for, by design. That's the way we're designed. Uh, but we sometimes go slightly astray. Once in a while, we embody something a little darker, do we not, to our fellow human beings? Part of the pain of becoming love is to have to realize all the ways in which you have not been loving in your life. You know what I mean? All the times you, you let people down and so on. That's painful. But the Word shows us that by seeking the Lord and humbly practicing His teachings in our lives until we delight in them, that's where you really become the light and the love, when you, when you delight in following those, those teachings. We can gradually become a manifestation of truth and even an embodiment of love. So if you're in the market for a vision, 
a direction in your life or perhaps at the end of the fiscal year if you're just working on your five-year personal strategic plan, I would suggest that this might be a good thing to shoot for. You're not going to get there in a day or a month or a year. But what a magnificent thing that Scripture says that it's possible for human beings to be a unique, each one different, a unique manifestation of truth and an embodiment of love. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I've often thought it was enough that you became a manifestation of truth. You became an embodiment of love. What amazing generosity that you would offer this to us as well. This degree of transformation. Yes, it is a painful path. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, it's like climbing a mountain. But you call us to bring love and truth together. You call us to the mountains. You want to show us that abundance in the seas. You want to turn our works into works of righteousness. Let us be that, Lord. Let us be light in other people's lives. Let, us, let other people hear through us your very voice and actions of love. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. We may even get brighter. Ha, ha, ha.